Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Last week... Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield joined me to take on this year's Grammy ceremony, and we had some criticisms. We weren't necessarily too easy on this year's Grammys, but now to respond, we have Harvey Mason Jr., CEO of the Recording Academy, which is, of course, the group behind the Grammys, who is more than willing to field some sometimes tough questions about the current state of the Grammys and the Academy. So that should be interesting. And after that, we take on Rihanna's big comeback performance at the Super Bowl halftime show. And for that discussion, I'll be joined by Monica Percante and Tomas Mier. But first, here's my interview with Harvey Mason Jr. I know you're making extensive efforts to try to modernize the Academy as much as possible. It's always tricky. I mean, you know, no one would say, I mean, I guess some people would say, but I wouldn't say that Harry's House is not a great album. It's not that Harry Styles doesn't deserve recognition. But I think when people look at Beyonce's loss in the album of the year category, they're not just talking about this year. They're talking about a pattern of snubs. And you're talking about otherwise the most recognized artist in Grammy history, but someone who's been shut out of the big category in a period when she's making her best work. So as the head of the Academy, does that concern you and what can be done about it? Everything involving our awards and our artist community concerns me. Uh, I definitely want our awards to continue improving as they have over the last few years. I believe that We've made some pretty massive changes to the way we do things, everything from our membership to our voting to our internal processes. But I have to say we're mid-transformation. I would never try and tell people that, yeah, we're exactly where we want to be. We're good. We're done. I say it loudly and I say it as, as frequently as necessary. There's work that needs to be done to make sure that we continue to get this stuff right. And a lot of that is based on membership. We've been working on changing our membership over the last three years. There's about 11,000 people who vote, just so you know, and so your listeners understand. Those 11,000 people completely and totally determine who the nominees are and then ultimately who the winners are. There are no committees. We used to have committees. We used to have other things in place. These voters look at the music, listen to the music, and decide which one they want to vote for. And it's all subjective. We know that. This is the beauty of awards shows. This is not math. This is not basketball. There's not a score. It's subjective. And there's a lot of incredible art being made. But going back to the membership, making sure our membership is relevant and working in the field that they're voting in and making sure they're professional people in the industry is, is a commitment on our part. And we've really gone completely into that process and looked at it. Over the last few years, we've increased our women voters by almost 20%. We've increased our people of color voting and underrepresented communities by 38%. So when you start hearing these numbers and you start understanding where we've come from and where we are now, I think it gives us some perspective. Again, we're not where we ultimately will be when we're finished, but we're going in a great direction. Speaking specifically about this year's nominees and winners, it's not about one category for us. There are a lot of really important artists. Absolutely. There's some that are long-standing members of the Academy family. There's others that this is their first experience. But if you look at it in total, I believe we had over 50, I think maybe 56 or 57% of our winners were people of color. 50% were women. So this is a new organization. This is a new Academy. There's always going to be some disappointments. There's always going to be some people that you might think, or I might think, or all of us might think are deserving. And that's the tough part about having a voting body determining who they think is the best album or song or record. That's darn near impossible. But we're getting to a place where it's improving and it's continuing to be more and more relevant every year. Just to be clear, those 11,000 people vote on every single category or are there subgroups in any way? It's a good question. It's a little bit complicated, but I will say this is very simple when it comes to the general field is 
album of the year, song of the year, record of the year, and best new artist. That's what we call our general field. In the general field, all 11,000 people vote. The other yeah. AB7 categories, you pick three fields, whether you're into R&B or rap or country or classical, and then you can vote in 10 categories across three fields. But everybody, again, to be clear, everybody votes in the general field. Beyond that, you pick three categories, and then you can vote in 10 different categories within those three fields. And that's done, just so I can explain, that's done because we want to make sure people aren't looking across the ballot and saying, oh, this is my favorite artist. They made a folk record this year. Let me just vote yeah. for them. I don't know folk music, but I love this artist. Or maybe somebody called you and says, hey, Brian, I got a song in children's. You got a song in classical. You vote for me, I'll vote for you. That's the sort of stuff we couldn't continue to have happen. And I don't, we don't have proof that it was happening, but with this system, we believe that we're keeping a closer eye on that and making sure that when you're voting, you're voting in a genre of music or a category that either you are familiar with or you're working in very closely. So it's almost like having experts of any given genre voting for their specific peers in that genre. I know the Academy Awards took some efforts that actually led to some controversy to actually call their membership. And in addition to increasing their membership, they were calling people who are no longer working. Some people were pretty angry about that, but they did do that. Is that something you're also looking at? We've done it. We reclassified 98% of our members in the last four years. So we were very intentional about this. We did not want someone that had a hit song in the 60s or 70s that now works in another profession still voting for best alternative album. And so we went through the membership. You have to make sure that you're still a working professional in the industry. You had to requalify with credits. Uh, we reviewed all of our members, 98% of our members, to make sure they were of voting status. And how many people left the voting body? I don't have the information, but we generally stay around between 10 and 13,000 in any given year. Some people join, some people term out, some people end up not having the qualifications, but we're still right around 11, a little over 11,000. And is that the size you want to be at? Or do you want to, as you add members, do you not want to call further? How, what is the size you'd like to end up at as far as the voting body? I'm less concerned about the size and the number of voters and more concerned about who they are, what the makeup is, what the percentages are. We know we need more women voters. We set a goal to have 2,500 new women members by 2025. We're 77% of the way there. We set a goal to make sure our black voters are represented and equally as the consumption and creation models of music are. Right now, we know 34% of music that is consumed is black music. So we want to make sure we're matching that with our membership. We're very close or mm. getting closer. So I'm more concerned about the representation. And I also want to make sure that we are not excluding any voices. There are certain genres that felt they were underrepresented, certain types of music makers that said, you know, and the Grammys don't get us or they don't know us. And we were very specific with purpose, went into those areas and we heard them. We listened. When I started this role, the first thing I did is say, I want to hear from people who are disgruntled. I want to meet with you. I want to call me, come to my studio, talk to me. And when somebody said, we don't feel heard, we established a listening process to go in and meet with the leaders, meet with the influential people of those genres or those constituencies and tell us what can we do better. And once we heard that, we realized we were lacking in voting in certain areas. So we invited people. We used to be the organization that sat back, and if you wanted to join, maybe we'd consider letting you in. We are now very specifically going into genres and saying, we need more representation from your group. Will you join us? And if you have the credits, we want you to be a part of our organization. So that's what I'm concerned with. And hip-hop and R&B are, of course, a couple of the genres that would be the focus there. 100%. But that's yeah. why we've moved from a single-digit percentage in voting to about 27% now on our way to 34%. We established the Black Music Collective specifically to give us some insight and some guidance around what should we be doing differently? How can we think about membership and awards and everything we do through the Black perspective or through the Black lens and give us the insight? We can't be experts of everything. We can't know all genres and constituencies and what their needs are. So the Black Music Collective was established specifically so that we could have a direct line to people who were working in the space, of course, I'm from that space, and I worked in black music my whole life, but I wanted to make sure it was formalized, and we were hearing from people who had things to share, and we've learned so much, we've changed so much, and I'm really proud of what's happened. But again, I have to say, it's a work in progress. We're still going. I'm actually extremely conscious of ageism in the music industry, and I'm very much against it. That said, do you know the average age of 
those 11,000 voters at this point? We do. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but we track that number. And one of our metrics for diversity is age diversity. We consider people under 30, under 40, and 40 and over. And those are the buckets that we monitor and we like to track. So we are very conscious of it. And we're always trying to make sure that we respect the people that have done it for a long time and that have a lot of expertise and knowledge, but also making sure we're inviting and including people who are in the studios, on the road, working day and night in this craft and in this field so that we are representing what's happening now and what's happening next. That's why we've had a push into independent music. We had our first independent music event this year ever. We're into the metaverse, so we're doing gaming. There's so many different things that we're doing to try and make sure we are listening. Again, a key word for me, listening and learning from different groups of people. And it's not just the same people that have been around the table for a long time. So for instance, do you know how many people are, what percentage of voters are under 40? I do, but not off the top of my head. I'll come back to you with it if that helps. Is that number increasing though? It is, is that, increasing yeah. rapidly. And it's a big area of focus for me personally and for our membership team. Now, as far as this show, I think there were some great moments that we'll get to. I, there was a lot of negative reaction to the fan uh, roundtables. Do you think that was a success? And is that something you'd like to see continue in the future? <laughs> That's a good one, Brian. You put that very delicately. The show is always an experiment. It's a science project. You're trying to find the right ratio of music to feel good, to dialogue, to storytelling, to awards. And it's always going to be something that we tinker with. Our show and producer, Fullwell73 and Ben Winston, Raj Kapoor, Jesse, Jesse Collins, they were incredible this year. I thought the show all in all was unbelievable. I believe the fans felt the same thing. Consumers, I believe the artist community would say the same thing as it relates to any specific package, I have to say that we're always going to try things. We're always going to try and push the envelope and see what's next. We don't want to have the same show every year. And to me, the fan packages were, they humanized the artists and they gave them a real insight into people that, that appreciate and love their work. So whether or not it was too long, too short, too many, too few, that's something that y'all can debate. For me, I enjoy anything in our show that brings humanity, that brings soul, that brings heart and that brings like passion. And that's what I'm always looking for when we're putting these shows together. I was curious what you made of the reaction to Bonnie Ray winning Song of the Year. After some initial backlash, I think there was also a sense that there's no reason why a veteran artist shouldn't win that. It, not every big award has to go to a young and hard artist, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of initial pushback and some people thought that was a sign of being out of touch. And may, even there were people saying, did she just win on name recognition? Although I, I think that's, I don't know if that's really a fair accusation, but I know that is one of the things that was out there. So what was your reaction to that? I was surprised, honestly. It's not something that I would have predicted, but I was really proud of it. And it means our voters are really doing the work. That's what I took away from it. I said, wow, they really listen. Because if you listen to that song one time and you're not crying by the end of it, you're cold inside. Excuse me, ma'am, maybe you can help. The directions weren't so clear. I'm the lyric, the songwriting, the musicality, the melody, all that, and all that went to making that song, what it was so advanced and so incredible that I think most people, by the time they heard the song, oh, okay, I get it. I see why she won. But I like it, and I like that there was something a little bit for everybody in this show, and that's never really what we're trying to do. We're just trying to make a show that represents music. But this particular show, and Bonnie Raitt's a perfect example, you know, you have people that respect Bonnie. If you were in the house and you saw the artist community, when they announced that category, there was so much respect and love for her. There was a standing ovation from the front of the section because they knew how hard she's gone, how long she's been doing this, what perfectionist she is at her craft and what she's done over the years to get to this point. So it was a respectful award. It was an award that she richly deserved. And from what I could tell in the room, the artist community supported her and knows how special she is and how special that song is. I think that's fair enough. I think in the spirit of Beyonce fans being concerned, there are Taylor Swift fans who've pointed out that for all the other recognition she's gotten from the Grammys, it is odd that such a beloved songwriter, one of the defining songwriters of our time, has never won a Song of the Year Grammy. I don't know if you have any comment on that. I think it's <laughs> every category has, I'm blown away by it, and I've been in the business a long time, but every category has so many incredible, amazing, 
talented people in it that I hate any of them to, I hate any of them should lose. And there are people that are doing the best music and the best songs, and the best performances, and they're grinding, they're bleeding, sweating, crying about this passionate work that they do, and they don't win. And that breaks my heart. And as a musician, as a creator, it hurts. As the CEO of the organization, it hurts. I wish we could give 10 Grammys out to all the nominees, but year to year, you don't know what's going to land with the voters. This show and the Grammys and the Academy is here to uplift and to try and serve the music community. And so it, it does get a little hard or it hurts when people feel like we're doing things on purpose or we're snubbing people or we're being unfair because there's no agenda here. We want to serve our community, serve music. That's why I'm in this role because I'm of the community. I'm in this industry deep for 25 years. There are people like, I believe, The Weeknd and others who are refusing to submit. Is that something that you're specifically working on, especially with a, particularly a big artist like that? Absolutely. I would n not lie to you and tell you that it's not and that I don't care because I completely care. And it's not just about a couple artists. It's about the artist community. I want the artist community to feel, I want them to trust the Academy and feel like we're doing the right work for the right reasons. So every day I wake up and I do the work at the Academy and every day the staff at the Academy wakes up and goes to work, it's because we need to earn the trust and continue to build the trust with the artist community. And that's in everything we do. And it's all zooming out. And you got to remember, Brian, zooming out for me, the reason that we do this, yes, we want to give trophies. Yes, we want to have a TV show. We want to celebrate and party with these artists and have a great time and be excited about music from the year. But the real purpose of the Academy is to serve the industry and do all the work we do. The other 364 days, the music cares, the museum, the education, the advocacy, fighting for the rights of music people. This is the stuff that I know we get right. We might miss an award. We might miss a nomination. Somebody might be pissed at us. But I promise you, when they find out the $30 million that we gave the music people that needed help during COVID, or when they find out the tens of millions of dollars in staff that we have in D.C. jumping up and down to fight for the rights of music people so that we can make a living, so we can get paid, and so we can be treated fairly. And when they find out about us being in schools and teaching kids who don't have music programs and who don't have instruments and putting instruments in kids' hands, I promise you they'll have a little bit of a different perspective. It was a really strong lineup of Best New Artist nominees, and they didn't perform this year. Yeah, it goes back to the, kind of the winning thing. It would be great if everyone could win. It would be great if everyone could perform. We're trying to always feature as many artists as possible on our show, whether that be in a performance or coming on stage. Again, our objective is to showcase music and uplift the industry. So I'm always pushing to have more performers and more diversity and more genres. I think in the future, we're going to be taking a look at other things that we can do to showcase different groups of nominees, like a best new artists grouping and performances might make a lot of sense. I'm not sure whether it'll be part of the show or another thing, but I do believe it's our job and our role to also showcase different types of music. And it's a real balancing act between how do we make sure we don't lose interest or lose viewers during our telecast with how do we use the opportunity and the platform and the chance that we have to bring along a new crop of artists that maybe some people haven't heard of, or maybe there's a genre of music that people weren't as familiar with that we can introduce them to on our show. So that's the challenge every year. Let's talk about what was kind of a universally beloved moment of this year's ceremony and really was one of the best performances probably in the history of the Grammys, which was the hip-hop tribute after 50 years of hip-hop. First of all, what do you remember about the first sort of inklings of that coming together and, and, and Questlove coming aboard and all of that? I remember how excited I was personally about it because this is music that I grew up on. This is A lot of these artists were artists that I loved in school. I was driving around to playing basketball too. So for me, it was really gratifying. But I remember the idea started by saying, we've got a very special anniversary coming up. And once Questlove was brought on board, the idea really started to take shape. We made some invitations to some key artists and then the momentum really started and it began to snowball. Other artists approached us. People started getting excited about it. And to me, it was one of the coolest parts of the show and being able to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop 
with absolutely the longest segment in the history of the Grammys, which that was, I think it was 15 minutes, 14 minutes, something like that. Uh, So we set history for the Grammys, but I also think it was a really cool way to celebrate what's easily one of the most impactful genres in the history of music. Having Questlove change the entire direction and dynamic of what that piece was. He is so knowledgeable, so talented, so respected, and he's a consummate professional and he's a great collaborator. And I think he made it really what it was along with the help of Jesse Collins and some of the other early artists that were brought in to conceptualize what that moment was going to be. But something that I think we can all be very proud of. And so tell me about, I know that there's going to be a full two hour, I think, special coming up later this year that's related to that performance or based on it or... Tell me about what those plans are. Sure. It is going to happen in August. August 11th is the actual anniversary. So we'll be taping it on that day. It'll be live to tape and then we'll broadcast sometime in the next quarter there. But we've been working on that for about six months and it goes hand in hand with what you saw on the Grammy stage. We thought the Grammy stage version of it, the 14 minutes was a great appetizer, almost like just a little insight into what the show is going to be like. In August, in August, we'll do more than just performances. Obviously, on the Grammy show, you saw different artists coming up doing eight bars or 16 bars of their songs, and we're going really quickly. In August, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about the history and the impact. We'll talk what it's meant to everything from politics to business to education to sports to fashion. Hip-hop has impacted culture globally for the last 50 years, and we're going to be addressing a lot of that on our show in August. Many of the people you saw on the Grammy stage will be playing a larger role going forward in this show. And then, of course, you'll see a lot of other people. We didn't have enough time to get to all the incredible hip-hop artists that we wanted to, but in August, we will. Do you have a sense of how the format of the performance is going to work? Is it going to be modeled after that sort of pass of the mic style? It's definitely going to include some of that, but it's also going to be uh, more nuanced and there'll be different versions of other ways of telling the hip-hop story and showing its impact. But it will have some of what you saw on the stage. And do you know who's hosting that? We have an idea, but I think I'll save it for a later date. Ryan, you and I will talk about it, and I'll surprise you with it, because I think you'll be really excited. Fair enough. Is there anything I didn't give you a chance to touch on that you wanted to? Maybe the only thing I would say is our vision is singular, and there is no agenda. It is purely to lift the music industry. And when you get more macro about it, the idea of music and what music means to our society and to our world, we have to make sure that the space is safe and creators are being remunerated properly and equitably. And so for me and for us at the Academy, the Grammy show is one day, the other parts of the year, we're going to continue to uplift music and you're seeing great results. Again, you can question certain elements of what it is that happened, or you can look at some results and say, oh, I didn't like that. But what you have to like and what you have to be excited about is the work that's being done, just even on an individual artist level. Look at the streams and the interest in these artists. Samara Joy is up 6,000% on her streams. Even an artist like Bonnie Raitt goes up almost 700%. I saw Beyonce's records back in the top 10. These things are lifting the music community. I'm not saying this to say we deserve credit. It's quite the opposite. These artists are incredible. The art they're making is amazing and impactful. And it's our job and it's our requirement to help lift them and showcase them and do what we can. This is why we're here. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm excited to talk to you, Brian, to make sure you understand and anyone listening hears what our vision is for the Academy, and that's to be a partner to the industry and lift the industry because the music is important. Thank you, Brian. Be well. So Brianna played the Super Bowl. It was a big return to performing. She hasn't released an album for seven years, which blows my mind. She also revealed that she is pregnant and also revealed to British Vogue that there is another album on the way. For that discussion, I have with us our friends Manka Percante and Tomas Mier. Tomas came out with a bold stance. Tomas came out and said that he did not like the Rihanna performance. Manka Per, you liked it. 
I was on a plane, so I saw it after all this discourse. But maybe we'll start with Tomas. Tomas, what did you not like about this performance? Brian, I think not liking it is a little strong for how I felt. I liked it, but I didn't love it. Tomas, did you like it when it happened? Okay, okay. I watched it in a crowded Mexican bar surrounded by other gay men who were excited. So yes, I was excited during the performance. But I felt like I was being edged, like I was waiting to see something else was going to happen. I liked it, but it didn't meet my expectations. Are you sure that you're not? So just a little background. I should read your tweet just to like you're being cross-examined. I haven't pulled up. I I haven't pulled up. Yeah. I feel like what's happening here is you took a lot of heat for your bold opinion. And I feel like now you're you're backtracking, I have to say. No, I'm not backtracking. <laughs> I stand by the fact that I didn't love this performance. I think I was underwhelmed. Okay. I said, I'm sorry, but Rihanna's halftime show was one note. Perhaps expectations were too high, question mark. The lack of outfit changes, special guests, energy. Even the pregnancy reveal could have been more of a moment. The music was exceptional, but it all felt underwhelmed. The exceptional is my hmm. love, not loving, but liking. <laughs> Man, we're, we're, let the record show that at least I'm suspect, but I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Akapur, what did you love about the performance? Here's the thing. I am 29. I've been listening to Rihanna literally since Pond the Replay, and I've been to the anti-tour. So I know what to expect from Rihanna as a performer, and I think the thing that may have happened over the course of the days after, in which Tomas and people who also were disappointed and expecting a different kind of spectacle, I think the thing that some people came to realize is folks who have seen Rihanna live know that this is like on par or like exceptional in the tier of performance that she is, it's capable of, isn't right the word, that she is dedicated to putting on. So for example, like the thing about the anti-world tour is that it's not that Rihanna's doing insane choreography. And might I note that like some of the people like Gaga, Katy Perry are not good dancers. Like even though they do choreography, they're not necessarily, they're not Beyonce. And Rihanna knows this about herself. Rihanna can dance. I disagree. I think Gaga is a very good dancer. She's not as good as Beyonce. I disagree about Gaga, but please continue. The point is that if you're going to attempt like complex, rigorous choreography, you can look like Gaga or you could look like Beyonce or Tinashe or a host of other women who are really incredible with their bodies. Or you could be Rihanna, who is like the queen of an aesthetic. Like Rihanna is not the performer that I expect to be like running miles on the treadmill, warming her vocals up or doing like a fierce eight count. She's cool. She's unique. She's alternative. And I think that is what this performance was. But so Anti didn't have a football field full of dancers. So this is definitely a spectacle in that regard. And those dancers, the people who their profession is that type of performance, did an incredible job. They were dressed really interestingly and alternatively. And the stage design, Anna's ability to stand in this mass of very physically capable people and not look out of place. I think that she just carried this thing that so many of us love about her into this exorbitant display of her incredible discography, which I'm glad that Tomas hinted on, right? I was actually at a spin class that was Rihanna themed two nights ago and they played the performance and I thought I was going to cry. There's a point at the end where she's just looking up at the fireworks after she did this incredible thing. And even she is like, damn, I just did that. Like she, even she looks mystified and it just felt so, so special, especially because we haven't seen anything from her in seven years. I see that's the part that I loved. Like that ending part was really cool. I think the cinematography of how they shot it as well. And I don't think, so I'm obviously comparing her to like other women pop performers that have done this show before her. And for me, I think that there were some things that could have expanded on what you're talking about, which there were things that could have made it more of a Super Bowl spectacle worthy show. For me, the big thing about the pregnancy was the reveal just happened way too quick. If this was a big moment, not even her dancers knew that she was pregnant leading up to this. According to a few dancers, she had showed up to rehearsals with baggy clothing and none had any idea that she was pregnant. I talked to some people at Apple Music, which sponsored the after show, had no idea that she was pregnant at rehearsals earlier that week. So I would have just liked to see her come out with maybe something baggy at the beginning, do a big reveal, and then we would all be gagged when that came about. And I think I wasn't gagged when I saw it. I was just like, 
hold on, is she pregnant? As opposed to, oh my God, here's the reveal, she's pregnant. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. I wasn't even convinced she was pregnant until her representatives confirmed it for various publications. Because, and so I say that to say that like the pregnancy to me was not even a part of the performance. She didn't get the Super Bowl because she has the capacity to get pregnant. She got the Super Bowl because she's an incredible artist and performer. And that's what, to me, I think it was actually beautiful that the very slight belly rub was so almost undetectable that there was a debate for the hours after the show, whether or not she was pregnant. And people still was like, man, that show was so good. And like I said, I think that the energy of it and even like the fact that there was not like a costume change, like I think that is in line with what Rihanna gives as a performer is particularly with only 13 minutes to perform. I see that. And she's also spending seven of those minutes floating in the air. Yeah. So where does, where does she change? Yeah. Logistically, I think that if we take a step back and it's like, what was possible given the, vi the vision and the history and the, I guess, propensity of this performer? Like what was actually possible? And then what do we get? And is that still spectacular? And to me, the answer is yes. Like. How many, I don't know. I think that there, I think that it would, it would be, if anyone else did a performance like this, perhaps I might be raising some of the same concerns, but I think that Rihanna's show embodied what a lot of people who like really know her love about her. And then I think people who are like so much of the world are probably like cursory or like surface fans, which is not a dig, right? You can't escape Rihanna's music, but like you heard all the hits. Yeah. And, and you saw them put together in a way that you, that even at the Super Bowl, like nothing like that, I think, I, at least aesthetically in my lifetime, have I seen anything that looked remotely like that? No, no it was so. very different. And, and again, like, I felt like there was a, the energy just didn't match what we were seeing from the dancers from Rihanna's part. I think her like outfit very much was made accentuate her belly. But at the same uh -huh. time, I think when we put that all into perspective, I think there was moments where, for example, like I would have loved to see somebody like Drake come out to perform with her the songs that they have together and then during that mm -hmm. time give drake like a second to perform maybe like a two-song medley or what bad bunny and j balvin did with shakira and j-lo i don't want to team up i don't want to be teaming up against you tomas but come on team um, up against me i guess i would say a couple things i think it's a really good point that this definitely was Re rihanna this, by the way, I just I saw an interview with her where she said it's actually Rihanna, but no one's oh, yeah, true. Yeah, okay. I'm yeah. so um, sorry, Rihanna. Uh, yeah. It's been like 18 years. That's fine. For <laughs> yeah, me. Every, everyone's been saying Rihanna for so long. But Rihanna was, her energy is this sort of punk rock, don't give a fuck energy in some ways. Like that is, and that sort of laid back thing, that is her. She was embodying that, especially when. She would do this minimal, cool choreography, especially towards the beginning. There's this one thing where she does just like a cool, let it show for the listeners. I just did a little wiggle. She did this one little <laughs> wiggle. There's your choreography. Fuck you. Which is so well, cool. I, you know the part so like, her. She like goes like this to her butt, like she moves her hand on her butt. I was like, okay, that's cool. But I just felt like for me, I would have expected something more with these sorts of performances. The only other thing, because there are some things I actually do agree with you on, Tomas, but the one other thing I'll say is that I personally think it was a flex and beneficial to the performance that she didn't bring out Drake. She didn't bring out anyone. Uh -huh. And the joke was her special guest. She was promising a special guest. to turn out the special guest was her unborn child. She has enough hits to carry it. We don't need a mini Drake set. I think it was a powerful statement of how many songs she had. I do think it seems valid to say, hey, visually, it was all kind of one energy for 14 minutes without kind of a, it didn't have like a transition. And I guess for 2023 attention spans, that may have been a little much to ask. But I think that was also sort of a flex. I can, I'm going to let the songs carry this. I'm going to let my incredible charisma carry this. And if that's not enough, we have these incredibly cool looking dancers. And that's just going to be, it's going to be this one energy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. As someone with a, a name that is often unfamiliar to people, I respect that Rihanna is like let, is 18 years in letting people know, I guess, maybe in a different way. I mean, she's done it before. Um, so I just wanted to say I'm going to try to say her name like that moving forward. <laughs> Although I'm like, girl, you've really been letting it slide for a long time. But anyway, the thing that I was saying earlier is, again, logistics, right? What do we know about Drake and Rihanna's relationship right now? The last, like, don't think that they are on terms in which Rihanna would want to bring this man into her one Super Bowl performance. And it's who else? She did all of the lights. Is she going to bring Kanye on stage? She did Umbrella. Jay-Z is running the thing. Is Jay-Z going to take a break from being the coordinator of the Rock Nation Apple Music Super Bowl halftime show to come perform? And then if it's not them, who else could it be? Shakira. So, like, again, like, I, you want them to do Remember to Forget You? would have been living i don't know about you but i would have been living shakir's going through a huge moment right now like i feel like that would have been it but tomas is that song a hit for rihanna it was a hit for shakira Ooh. it was a hit for you and shakira. yeah <laughs> no i know what you're saying you're right but i just think like there was an element there missing where i think we needed something different for a second i just didn't think that was enough for like literally the biggest comeback of your life and also I think this was a missed opportunity for Rihanna. And I'm going to be honest, I feel like if she came out being like album out next month or something like that, after this performance, it would have been like taking this huge moment and actually like making something from it as opposed to like it being a sick performance. I think a lot, especially working at a place like Rolling Stone, like who are celebrities to us? What do we expect of them? How reasonable are those expectations? Rihanna would have had to have the album ready enough at the point that the Super Bowl was going on while raising her first child and like not even and never and not really having committed to this album at all over the past seven years. For her to announce it at the Super Bowl, it would need to be ready enough that that would be fair. And then I think the, literally the next day or two days later, her British Vogue interview came out. And it's like, no matter what we think about that story, she did talk about the album. She didn't even address her her walking back on her Kaepernick statements, because remember, in what, 2019 or so, she said she would never do the Super Bowl. So it's, I think that what do we expect out of this 13 minutes in the scope of like who Rihanna is as a cultural figure? And is it fair? Are these expectations fair? And do the choices that she actually did make, do they make sense? And then I think the big, I think the argument that resonates most with me, Tomas, is like, I was underwhelmed because I expected this based on other performers. And it's like, if you are just not familiar, I guess, with what Rihanna does as a performer, then I can understand that sentiment a little more. You're right, because I've, never, I've like, never seen Rihanna live. And that, when you said that, like, that's such a good point. I've never seen her oh, perform wow. oh, live. Uh, amazing admission. I thought you were going to defend your, no, your bona fides I, as no, a fan, I, Tomas, but instead you admit it. Okay, I okay. admit it's, it out loud. I have shaked some ass to Rihanna at some gay clubs, but I've never seen her perform live. She has moved with a little more energy. She has had brighter colors, but it's like, think about who Rihanna has evolved into since then. And then also, like, 
I don't know. I think that even if you, I think that it's possible that even if like you're underwhelmed because you're thinking about the Beyonce's, the Katie's and the Gaga's, it's like, like the other parts of it just would have made it up for me. And you've kind of acknowledged this, right? Music direction, A1. Staging, unique. Never seen anything like it there. We have. Even if the it was very, to you, it was very it didn't Kanye. matter to me. It was, the stages well, were yeah, very at Kanye. at the Super Bowl is yeah. what I mean. Yes. Yeah. And I, honestly, I do think that the way she did all of the lights and the stages, I was like, is she trying to tell us something about how she feels about Kanye? My question is, uh, if, the, if we look at the staging as like an homage or inspired by something Kanye has done, and if the decision to perform, All of the Lights is a huge song and it's a very good song. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorite songs. I'm not mad that she did it. But it like those the combination of those things, I don't know if it's just these are just good ideas and a good song, so I'm just using them, or I don't want people to forget that this man was a genius. I did have that thought. It wouldn't be the first time Rihanna aligned herself with someone who has hurt people or communities of people with their words or actions or herself. It wouldn't be the first time. So I just was curious about that. But like I said, it wasn't like a focal point for me. The bigger thing for me as I watched it, I just I got more. I'm not not more. Just exactly what I wanted out of the show. For a game, I don't really believe in or care to watch it any other way. I want to refer to something that actually goes against my thoughts about it being underwhelming and it was like somebody kind of broke down what the theme might have been for the super bowl there's this tweet that i saw mm-hmm. it basically showed how the, how the dancers were performing and how rihanna appeared on stage was like showing like the fertilization of an egg because it was like supposed to be motherhood and that rihanna symbolized the egg and then the white dancers were the sperm and then you see them coming around and coming inside of the egg which would be like the fertilization and then by the end of the performance, when she comes up, Rihanna is like the fetus. Because by, do you know how at the end, she does slightly change her outfit and wears like a really big coat that's like longer. And people think that's the egg becoming the fetus. When I saw that perspective, I was like, hold on, this makes sense to me. And I feel like if that's true, if that interpretation of the performance is true, I think it saves it for me. I just hadn't seen that when I wow. sent out my tweets. I will say that's really Did you guys see interesting. that? Oh, that's I really didn't see interesting. Anything like I, I buy it. it. She chose to commit to this as the full aesthetic for the thing, which is, I think, really interesting. And it was, I'm sure all this was discussed, which is, yeah, a lot of people switch it up and it's like, no, we're going to stick with this one vibe. And that's really interesting what you just said, or what the tweet you just quoted <laughs> said about that that was the symbolism, which is also, frankly, a slightly comic when you think about it, but like a little funny, but at least, but interesting. And it would explain why she held so tightly to the vibe. But I also think it was a statement about sort of how many hits she had and how much that music can just carry it and that she doesn't need that much. She doesn't need guests. She doesn't need costume changes. I would say one thing that bothered me a little bit is there's a lot of back and forth on this, but the belief is that there's an element of lip syncing to every single Super Bowl performance just by the nature of the, the mechanics of having to perform in the middle of a game. So even the rock performances have some element of lip syncing and miming. And there's a lot of, honestly, a lot of dispute about the extent to which any of it is live. I think to the rock performances, a lot of times they're doing live vocals to pre-recorded instruments because they just can't get that right. It's very confusing, but there's a lot of sort of rumors and back and forth. But I felt like the lip syncing wasn't the greatest at points. And she was a little bit casual about (laughs) pulling the mic away from her and the vocals would continue, that kind of thing. And that that kind of, I watched carefully for that. And that, that kind of thing always bums me out. But I also think that's, again, true to her, like, I don't give a fuck aesthetic. That was a little weird to me, but whatever. That, Just that doesn't even do it for honest. me. That's not even a big deal for me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. As a pop super fan, you're yeah, used to that. Yeah, I'm used obviously. to that. No, there's one video of Shakira literally dropping her mic like during the performance and like the vocals just continue and she just laughs and just keeps doing it. And it's like, what else is she going to do? I don't know. I don't expect I don't expect them to not. And so that for me was not a detractor from the performance. I didn't even notice. I was so excited and so impressed that I didn't notice any lip syncing being off. I did think this doesn't sound like her live vocal, but like Tomas said, them's the breaks. But No, for sure. But if we go back again to Katy Perry's performance, which I know I keep referring to, but (laughs) Sis had five outfits and she was wearing like one on top of the other on top of the other. Like those things are so possible. And it all, like at one point, 
when she performed with Missy Elliott, which, by the way, was, I think, one of the best special guests that we've ever had at any Super Bowl halftime show, was Missy Elliott mm-hmm. coming out for Katy Perry. She literally came out in this, like, dress that was a, like, a football jersey, like a baggy football jersey dress that she could just take off, and then underneath was her next outfit. And I think if Rihanna did something of that sort, we could have had a, ooh, boom, baby. You know what I mean? And I think if that was her intention about the motherhood thing from that tweet, then it would have made more sense. I wonder if also her intention was like, I'm the performer, like, I'm the hit maker. This is my show. It's our show. It's me and this baby. But it's like, people are not here for the baby. And like, I do this as a professional, no matter what state mm. of like motherhood I'm in. So it's, I don't know, because there was a lot of conversations about what were her intentions? What were her, what was her intention with the breastplate? What was her intention with the slight belly rub? Like, and even like now, what was the intention with the whole choreography and aesthetic of it? Right. But it's like, I think that like, I don't know. I try, I, like, I, I want to lean into different sorts of intentions and then go from there and say, like, if this is it, is this valid? Is this is it, if, is this valid? And so, like, Katy Perry, for example, is a woman who shot whipped cream out of her tits. But yeah, so it's like to expect, like you said, camp or anything of the sort from someone like Rihanna, it doesn't, the math is not mathing. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I can understand because it is a lot of math and no one sits down to the Super Bowl to be like, all right, this is what I know about Rihanna. This is what I think is going to make sense. No one does that. They just sit there and they want to see a good show. So I get that. Tomas, I appreciate your sort of fan fiction alternate versions of this performance. <laughs> it's really funny. You've clearly conceptualized no, this about similar ideas, really so, well, which is very funny. And I will say also, I appreciate that you were willing to come out with a negative opinion because I think people are a little like, Poptimism to death, where they're afraid to say anything negative about a big star's performance or a big star's album. And I think it makes things a little boring. And look how much more interesting it is that someone's willing to be like, yeah, and I think that's okay. Yeah. And it's okay. I think people like basically tearing your head off on Twitter and being like, clearly you hate women and all of humanity <laughs> for like saying this is, I don't think that's fair or like helpful, but also t- to be expected. Yeah. But it also be, helps but, when you're like having yeah. a discussion with somebody like Bakufer, who's a queen and actually listens to what I'm saying and I listen to her and we have a discussion. It's not like this is wrong and you're wrong. It's like all of our opinions can exist. If this was Nicki Minaj, I would be so scared of the barbs and I know I would have knocks on my door. So if it was her, I would have, mira, I would have kept my mouth shut the whole time. I also want to give Tomas his credit. It wasn't just hating for hating's sake. Like, he literally said, these are the things that I would have liked. And then that, that opened a room for a productive, constructive conversation because people could then say, this is why this expectation doesn't jive with me. This is why this happened this way. I did want to take it broader for one second. Rihanna's career path is really unique at this point. Taking seven years between albums is... And obviously, she's been very focused on a fantastically successful fashion career. But seven years between albums is basically unprecedented. And to not only take seven years between albums, seven years between tours, I believe, or six or something, because I forget when the anti-tour ended, but to then be able to casually headline the Super Bowl because you haven't lost one iota of your star power and for the hits all to feel so fresh seven years since the last one, because we won't talk about that Black Panther song, which I thought was mid. I guess I did just talk about it. Say after 72 listens, I did begin to like it. But please go on. It sounds like more agreement. I think that was the universal opinion. It worked. I will say that in the it was actually seemed to be meant for the scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. It served the function in the movie. It didn't feel like a real Rihanna comeback single, obviously. I think that's like a giant Rihanna song. I think but it wasn't supposed to be for it, real, exactly, but anyway. Exactly, yeah. right. I, I think it was meant to serve that function in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she got a big check, so then that's good too. But is interesting to... She's quiet quit music for seven years, and it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how she makes her way back. And if she intends to make her way back in sort of the monumental blockbuster way that she had in the past, or if it's going to be kind of a lower key thing, or if she's going to, it's going to be very, I think that album launch is going to be one of the most fascinating things ever. Whenever it, it, is, it is. I read her 
full British Vogue profile yeah, or her cover story. And she said, it's interesting. She was like, I want to make videos and I need songs to go with videos. I think that, I th and like, I'm really excited about that because I was watching, of course, spin class. I was watching work. Work, 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 work. You see me heavy, work, 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 work. You see me do me da, 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 da. I was watching the video for the Tame Impala cover. really interesting as a creative force. Like the people that she brings around her, the ideas that come forth out of her as like the centerpiece are so fascinating to me. And it's, I don't know, like I think that's one of the reasons why I'm like, I think when Rihanna is making her big comeback, we'll know what it is when it is. Like her being on Black Panther, I remember being excited about it, particularly because Thames wrote the song. And I do remember feeling, damn, this song is not hitting like that. Then I was just like, it's not her album. It's it's a soundtrack song curated so differently this year. It's not like it was the Kendrick curation. I'm really ready. I'm excited. And I'm interested to see just like this, like what the conversation about it is going to be. And like, especially just because like even what it means to be famous is so different now than what it meant in 2016. I've never seen someone maintain their level of stardom without doing anything for so long. It's amazing. I mean, anything musically. And you know, guess even from the interview, the British Vogue interview, I'm not like totally convinced that her heart is 100% in music or has been. I mean, clearly it hasn't. She hasn't been making it. So it's going to be interesting if she, again, is she really feeling it? Is she really going to devote herself to it when she has an entirely separate career that's so successful? And then does she make this album and then does she disappear for another seven years? And again, it's like, you can't really compare it to anyone. I've never seen anything like it. If anything, that again, that performance just reminded us, man, she has a lot of hits. She didn't even play close to all of them, but just Super Bowl level hit after Super Bowl level hit, really, and, and just unmatched charisma. But only one costume, you're right, Tomas. <laughs> anyway. It's true. But also we're talking about someone who has like multiple songs that are crazily surpassed the 1 billion streams on Spotify, which is insane. But one thing I did want to mention, which is unrelated to Rihanna specifically, I'm really excited for what Apple Music sponsoring the halftime show is going to mean for the halftime show moving forward. A streaming service being the sponsor of a performance so big, what that will do for the quality of performances, the lead up of performances, and the type of content that we're going to receive. It does open the door for a Taylor Swift performance. She wasn't going to do it as long as Pepsi was the sponsor so that will it's a it has to do with other yeah because she did coca-cola so, so yeah exactly wow. so she could not have done it but so I, that will i think we can be sure that will happen sometime in the next half decade unless she decides she doesn't need it unless she saw how mean tomas was know about theory? rihanna my yeah. theory is that what so she's going to finish re-recording all of her albums except one and then she's going to bam perform at the super bowl and then that night that last re-record is going to drop. And it's going to be 1989. Like More fan fiction from Tomas. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Uh, I want to know who anyway. you guys would want to see at the Super Bowl next year. I read an article in the New York Times mu magazine music issue several years ago. And the writer was arguing that like these stars like Taylor, Kanye, Rihanna, Drake, we're not going to we're not going to develop stars at this magnitude anymore because one, like the way the technology around music has changed. Like we all have access to streaming and there's so much music that we're not all agreeing on people or like we're, we're not limited to certain like stars or genres in the spotlight anymore. So it's just so and I don't know, like I think that the expectation for Rihanna is always going to be super high because she's like this giant star. But I just don't think we're going to have as many of them moving forward. And I think that the ones that we have are going to dwindle, not because they're bad or not good at their craft. But I think that what's going to happen is like whatever she comes back with is not going to feel big enough for however people think Rihanna, mm. how big Rihanna should be, even though it's just like what she wants to do. And it's going to be done at a high level. The Super Bowl is a great example of that. Right. Because it's like we have this idea of who Rihanna is. So we have these like enormous expectations. But it's like these people have been famous for 10 to 20 years. Like they're just doing what they want now. And they're also not being drowned out. But there's another there's a whole new generation of such different type of artists gaining acclaim coming up under them. And that's what I keep saying about like celebrity and fame and how it's evolving and how it's changing. It, it's like one like I think that I don't know whatever I think no matter what, whatever Rihanna comes back with is going to be deeply unsatisfying to people because of who she's been and who she is now. And then two like. 
as far as who I'd want to see next, I don't know. We're running through the greats. Like maybe Drake does the Super Bowl. That's fine. That'll be cool. Not cool. Like he's the biggest rap star in the world. It would be cool. But like after that, for me, as like a rap, R&B, hip hop, Afro beats, like black diasporic music girl, I can't think of who the NFL is going to think is big enough that I care about and like to be on the Super Bowl stage. I don't know, maybe there's an Afrobeats themed show in five years. That'll be cool. The person who I would want to see at the Super Bowl next year, along with Taylor uh-huh. Swift, would be somebody like Ariana Grande. Yes. Boom. That's it. What's hilarious is I always talk about this with people is the people who plan the Super Bowl don't know anything that we don't. Like, in other words, they go through the same conversations that we would have about who, because the list is so small, mm-hmm. who is conceivable. So yeah, Ariana's on the list, Taylor's on the list, Drake is probably top of the list. The trick isn't coming up with the names, the trick is somehow convincing these people to do it. That's Because hilarious. we can come up with the names right now. There's only 10 people right now who you can even imagine it given because it's not going to be someone it's not going to be stevie wonder unfortunately because you know that demographically you want to hit young so it's only this group of like relatively young people who are big enough this is not like a long list of names and i think your point is very well taken mongaper i i have to maintain hope my thing is always to maintain hope that there will be big stars that will unite people with admiration and i hope they come from all different places i think just for sort of our purposes as a entity that kind of needs stars, needs things to talk about, needs things that bring people together, things that have broad appeal and cross all sorts of demographics. I think that I'd like to think that the star making machinery isn't broken yet, but it is notable that somewhere around 2012, it did seem to start sputtering out as far as like people who are these level, Super Bowl level stars. Yes, but the thing, I think the thing that, I I think the like, the concept of celebrity is like who gets to make and decide who's a celebrity, right? So Bad Bunny should definitely do the Super Bowl. Absolutely, and that's one of the few people who, and I can see that happening, absolutely. If you ask me who the 10, are on that list of 10 people, I would actually say that absolutely, that was one of the people I was thinking of. But I guess the thing that I think about that is, look at the way that the Grammys just went. Yes, he's great. He's great for the opening. Bad Bunny had the most successful album of any of those people who were nominated for album of the year and did not win. So I guess the thing that I'm thinking is, are we, like when we think about we, like as a, let's just even say the West, right? Like, are we like the people who have these like entertainment capitals willing to all unite around people who are different from like, the people who have been at the center for so long. And if, if that's the case, then yeah, sure. I think, there's, I think there's tons of star power. It's just like, how willing are we to put different types of people in the center? I, I'm optimistic about that as well. I think that actually Bad Bunny has become one of those people who crosses demographics. I'm like the Latino one here, and I'm not even optimistic of that. Like the thought of middle America tuning into a Bad Bunny halftime show just doesn't click with me. Like he's the biggest <laughs> artist, but mm-hmm. I feel like there, like, I feel like the Super Bowl has been this, like, like epitome of, like, whiteness a little bit for the longest time. And I feel like when it comes to that, like, I wouldn't be able to see somebody, like, I wouldn't, I don't know, I just, I would love to see it personally. But I worry that we're not there yet. And because I, I, I worry that for the NFL, right, like, the entity, I don't think, I don't even think that people as a whole are incapable of it. I worry that like the institutions that get to make the decisions about who has the biggest visibility are too scared of what the people think to actually just be like, okay, so what? So maybe we lose middle America, but he's the biggest star in the world. So yeah. other people are going to watch it. You get left to tune in the house down. It's, it's interesting. And then it's like it's after interesting conversation. Got, yeah, it is interesting because it's also once you've done that, then maybe people who are like, hmm, I was on the fence about this or I wouldn't have listened to this before, enjoy it and they have a great time. And then now you've really shifted the star power. I don't know. There's just so many different factors that are at play, like determining like who gets the visibility, right? Let me put it this way. Long story short, within a decade, you'll see Bad Bunny or someone equivalent headlining the Super Bowl. I would be surprised if that didn't happen because it's already come a long way uh, since Jay-Z took it over. Again, I'm optimistic about progress. I'm optimistic about all this. Uh, I just, I force myself to be. But anyway, thank you both. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.
welcome to Talkville. The Ultimate Smallville Rewatch Podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.